Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading the magazine and listening to the podcasts. I am very happy today. I have a very eccentric designer who I've been really looking forward to talking to for quite a while. His name is Steve Lieberman. He is the owner of SJ Lighting Inc., Thank you so much for making the time to chat with me today. Chris, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Absolutely. You look like you're very comfortable in uh, what looks like your wonderful home office there. Or no, is this, is a... the, this is the office office. If I worked out of the home office, you'd hear me. You'd see me looking to the side and trying to shoo the dogs away and kids walking by and my wife and too much activity. Plus, uh, I like to come to the office even during this interesting situation we're in and spend a little time just in my work environment, you know, proper work environment. That is so clever. It is, I feel like it's the way that we were designed to be. Don't get me wrong. I love the technology has given us the opportunity to work from home, but working from home is a real pain in the dick. It's hard. It's hard. So, I mean, there's a lot of inefficiencies of being at home. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of opportunity there as well. Like I love, hanging out, having lunch with the family, or, but I can focus more when I'm here at my desk, the door's closed, and it's, this, this place is business only. There's no shenanigans over here. So when I'm sitting at my desk and I've got all my resources in, in front of me, I can get, a, you know, get the workflow going in a much more efficient manner. Yeah, sometimes that you just need that separation. You just need to just leave the house and like, I'm going. I am, right. I'm unavailable for X amount of time. Don't call. Right. Well, I love you. Yeah, it's goal-oriented, I'll be back. right? Yeah. Yeah. You go, okay, I'm going here. I have some tasks that need to get done. So I'm going to do A, B, C, D. I mean, we use task management software just for me to manage projects that are going on and what needs to be done and due dates and things like that. But I, if I sit on my couch with my laptop open on my lap or on the ottoman, you know, I'm slouched forward. I mean, I'm leaning back down with my feet up, but that's because we're chatting, but I'm slouched <laughs> forward. It's not, not the most comfortable, easy work environment, you know, forward with the mouse. Whereas, you know, when you're at a desk, you're at a drafting table, you're at something, you're kind of set up to get the work done. And I don't really want to spend the time setting up like my home office back the way it was years ago. I'd much rather just come here. My office is only about three miles from my house. So I just get in the car, come over here, and and I can get things done. And then you know all the guys that work for me, um, we're we're all on like we have a WhatsApp chat going on. We have other uh, like not we don't use Zoom, but we use something similar. And we we have online meetings all the time, and we can still get things done. I just like sitting at my desk. I I agree with you. I'm if nothing else, this whole thing has taught me that I need to be somewhere outside of my house to feel super focused for work. Being at home just turns my brain into home mode. I'm a dad here. Right. Out on the road, I am, I'm still a dad. I mean, I can never not be a dad, but man, I am so much more focused and prepared for, to, I can get four hours of sleep because I can, uh, right. I can, because I'm ready for the next day's work. Right. And for those so. of us who do production, I mean, that's kind of part of the, the daily protocols, you know, standard operating procedures, you know, work all day, work all night, you know, lay down just long enough to get the batteries just out of the red and then back to it. So, yeah, that's actually one of the reasons that I primarily wanted to reach out to you because your work schedule in particular is not the sort of schedule that 
a, a family man runs. I mean, you, you, if, if kids are going to be ready to school, ready to go to school at 8 a.m., you can't be getting home at 7 a.m. Whereas no. in the, the EDC lifestyle, we're often getting, we're often getting off work at 7 a.m. No, listen, this wouldn't be possible for me to do this type of work if my wife wasn't at home handling the other side of responsibilities of raising a family, making sure that the kids mm -hmm. are up and going. When I'm home, I'm, I'm 100% present. I'm with them. You know, we're active together. You know, we do lots of activities together. But when I'm out on the road, we're doing shows. I'm on a job site, whether it's building a club or doing a festival. It could be the other side of the planet. You know, I can't be the responsible parent to make sure that they're up at six in the morning getting ready for school so that they're out the door. You know, you, you need a partner. Yeah, they don't respect sleep the same way that a production manager does. A uh, no. production manager at least knows like, well, hey, look, you're only going to get four hours of sleep. I'm going to give you eight the next day. Kids, right. man, they don't, they don't give a shit. They're like, hey, no, they I'm up at six, you're up latitude. at six. Yeah, they don't get the same sort of latitude also. Like school is, you know, your teacher's not going to be like, I know you stayed up late doing homework. Why don't you just come <laughs> in late and miss first period? That doesn't work either. <laughs> you know, they have their job. We have ours. And, you know, the expectations are high. You need to go do your job. How do you switch back and forth when you go away and come back? Does it take you a day? Uh, there, there's a re-entry period. You know, there's decompression. Even with like, even this weekend, which was very refreshing, you know, I was, we were doing live streams all weekend. And I tell you what, uh, it was nine hours a day. I was still getting home at three, four in the morning. And it felt like, you know, it felt like how it normally is. Like I was exhausted, you know, my body hurt. And then I was getting up early and getting going. Um, and when I come in, there's always like decompression, whether it's you come off of a night shift and you come back and you just need to sit on your couch and watch TV, even if it's at five in the morning and just decompress for 30 minutes or, you know, a longer, a longer period. You know, if I come off of a week traveling, you know, it probably takes me two or three days just to kind of shake the dirt out of my ears. <laughs> It's, it's, a, it's a complete switch. It's, it's similar to jet lag, but it's, you just have to completely change your, you have to trick your brain into saying like, well, no, I wake up at 8 a.m. now. I don't, I don't start work at 11 p.m. now. You right. gotta, it's a complete uh, rearrangement. But the energy level when you're on a production and where you're out in the field is, you know, it's, there's a multiplier there. It's 10 times your normal day, you know, daily routine. So mm -hmm. when you're out running around at production, it's, it's go, go, go. Even when you're at lunch, it feels like it's go, go, go. Like you're sitting in catering and you're eating some food. Then your radio all of a sudden chimes in looking for you. You're like, shit, I got it. Let me finish. I got to go. I'll catch up with you guys in an hour. <laughs> I got to go fix something on stage two. And then I'll meet you back in the production office you know, at three o'clock and we can have that meeting about the next show. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's daily. That's, that, that's very normal behavior when you're out doing this. At home, I feel it's equally hectic. I just don't feel as productive. Like I feel like I spend the entire day putting out fires and there's, I don't feel like I've accomplished anything by the end of the day. Whereas like at home in an hour, just like you described, I can get 20 things done. At home right. in an hour, I can't even get kids' roller skates out the right. door in an hour. Like, and, I've and, been working on this yeah. project for an hour, and I've got nothing to show right. for it. And you have your honey-do list also, just things I, around the house. Absolutely. Uh, the honey-do list is getting lower. We're, we're starting to run out of things to do. We're kind of inventing things nowadays. Well, I mean, that's good. Yeah. Um, so the other reason I wanted to reach out to you is because a lot of people didn't think that the EDC or the EDM world would ever turn out as large as it was. Uh, when I think of when I moved to Vegas in 2000, nightclubs were kind of the, the back thing. Like they weren't, even, they weren't even in casinos yet. And then they kind of got into casinos and then they became bigger and then even then it was just kind of a light jockey and some Mac two fifties. That's right. And that was a, that was your nightclub and that was what everybody thought it would be. But now that is definitely not the case. They have completely flipped the switch and 
EDCs are the biggest events that I can think of nowadays. Can you kind of talk about how you saw that progress and what, what your, what your hand in it was? I mean, the growth has definitely been exponential. So Mm -hmm. back in the very beginning of my career, yeah, is that exactly as you just said, the, uh, the nightclubs were very much subculture, uh, even the, the most crowded clubs, you know, they do a thousand, fifteen hundred people, you know, back in the day. Um, but it wasn't a mainstream deal and it wasn't a VIP section. The VIPs back then were like the club kids and the eccentrics, not the super wealthy hipsters and yuppies and, you mm-hmm. know, whoever, you know, any the, the influencers, the influencers, whoever came in, you know, with 10,000 or more to spend, which, you know, which is insane. Could you imagine going into a nightclub just for the night and spending $10,000 plus plus in booze just to hang out at a table? That's, that's a lot of wood to chop for that. Um, But that became really one of the driving forces in pushing this experience, the nightclub experience, at least into this next level of where, you know, the whole landscape was kind of transformed from dance hall style nightclubs to VIP bottle service and VIP catering style venues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know when they realized that they could start charging even more than exorbitant prices. It used to be like just even 400% markup was something. And now it's got to right. be a 1000% markup on some of these bottles because Easily. of of the status that comes with having that bottle in that location at that time. Well, exactly. You, you can't look at it as as I'm paying a thousand percent markup for a bottle. You have to look at it as I'm paying to be present at this location. And that's just part of the package that comes with it. It's I'm being paid to be served by this wait staff to sit at this table, to be handled by this VIP host, to experience this entertainment package, you know, whether it's a DJ a band or otherwise inside this club that they spent a hundred million dollars building. That's what you're paying for. So if you just equate it to the alcohol, yeah, you can save thousands of dollars. Just go to the liquor store, buy the most expensive bottle, go buy your 1942 and go sit in your living room. It's not the same experience. No. In fact, you, if you were to take it in a very philosophical, philosophical direction, you're paying for the production value. Absolutely. But on multiple levels, not just the technical production, the entire production, the interior design, the staffing, their outfits, the entertainers, and the lighting, sound, video, special effects. It's, it's all of that. It's an all-encompassing environment. So with nightclubs, nightclubs are more well-known for their negative space and their darkness. How, do, how are you able to throw thousands of fixtures at, at a show and still create negative space? Because, I mean, nobody wants to party with the work lights on. Of course not. But I think, you know, I don't know that that philosophy only relates to nightclubs. I think the proper way to execute a show, and again, this it's subjective, right? It's an opinion. Um, but the proper way to execute a show is to use certain features at certain times. A thousand fixtures doesn't mean you turn all thousand on. A wiggle light mm-hmm. doesn't mean it needs to wiggle. So there's an appropriate way to use the tools and to execute a philosophy, right? So Uh, When there's a thousand lights, and obviously it's not really a thousand lights, but when there's, you know, tons of fixtures inside a property, uh, it's there for coverage, typically, at least, you know, on a lot of most of our designs, you know, we like to get coverage in areas. It doesn't mean that we're just firing it all up at once. You know, you Mm -hmm. don't just take the, you don't just take the race car around the track with your foot on the floor the whole time. You know, you Mm -hmm. have to be able to maneuver it in order to make it appropriate for that portion of the night, for that portion of the show. So it comes a lot down to the driver, right? Who's behind the console. So you can have a driver that, that is experienced and understands kind of the flow and the sociology of the environment and can utilize that negative space. Or you can have a driver that uh, maybe has less experience and just, you know, as you said, puts the work, work lights on when people are trying to have a good time and you have to just kind of understand what that needs to be and what the philosophy of the event is because different shows also have different styles. You know, mm-hmm. there's, I've done events inside nightclubs in Vegas and other places where the theme of the night is, you know, and it's like house music, underground techno, 
but they don't want anything other than red light all night. Even it could change its movements, its intensity levels, sine waves and such. And you could transform the room that way with subtleties. But if you do anything other than red, you've changed the dynamic of everything that they're trying to do. Like even for a moment, like not even a flash of white, you know, and then there's other shows that are a little bit more candy that you can just kind of every song you can do a different look and a different style and a different appearance. You know, it's just the methodology and the philosophy of what you're trying to achieve. I've heard that a few times in Vegas where they're just like, no, red and hits of magenta. That's it right. all night long. Work on your tempo, work on your movement. That's right. That's your world. And if you think about it, like those people, while the, you know, they're having their vibe, the red light sets a vibe. There's a reason it's the red light district, right? It's mm-hmm. like a sexy color. Everybody kind of looks good under it. You're yeah. not, you know, don't try to reinvent the wheel. We're, they're not there for the light show. They're there for the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to come and get a light show, then maybe you go to a different venue for a different party where it's, you know, production driven DJ booth with a lot of flair moving up and down and that kind of shit. But when it's a vibe and there's more, you know, maybe interior design and scenic details built in, they don't, they don't want that. And you're, and you're controlling the vibe. So Mm -hmm. there's different philosophies when you're at the desk, are you controlling the vibe or are you just mashing a light show into their face? (laughs) We hope that most of the people are, Kind of, kind of trying to control the vibe or work with the, the DJ to maintain right. a similar vibe. Uh, in fact, to continue the, the earlier metaphor, what you're doing more is you're kind of building the car. And then once you're done, you're kind of handing over the keys to just a handful of different drivers. When you're doing a, a festival or a nightclub, you're yeah. building what you believe to be the sexiest, most, uh, well-adapted car and then you hand over the keys to whoever the the club wants to hire to to drive your car that's right you have to separate yourself sometimes uh yes i mean we try to stay somewhat involved and we try to maybe give some guidance to the venue to the festival as to making sure that you have the right people in place uh that's not always the way things go so you just do your best to just kind of hold on for the ride. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think all of us who've been around the industry, you know, for any amount of time, uh, you're going to get a good cross section of all of it. You're going to see guys who know how to, you know, you'll see people who know how to take a console, guys, girls, and otherwise mm-hmm. take a console and really be able to do a good light show or put on a good show, whether whatever they're controlling. And then you'll see people who are more concerned about what they're doing on the desk and things are just maybe a little bit more chaotic uh, with not as much consideration. So there's, there's a big delineation, I think, between being good on a console and being good with a rig. Ooh, that is a very important delineation. Right? So you need to be able to understand what you're trying to achieve, not just like, hey, look at these cool macros I've written, look at these gifts that are put in the desk that are making things pop up, and then you just basically <laughs> explode a rainbow onto, onto a rig. Like, don't, don't do that. Um, understand what the rig needs to be, and then whatever the desk is, you know, hopefully it's your desk of choice, but if it's not, understand just what you need to get out of that console in order to achieve the look that you want to see on the rig. It's just a method for delivery, right? Are you seeing a lot of that these days where you're seeing people trying to manipulate their, their layouts and their, their console buttons just to make the, the console look better than, uh, uh, than the light rig? You know what? Um, absolutely. Yes. That is yeah. 100% the case. There are some guys with super sexy layouts yeah. and really know how to put out a shelf. And then there's some guys with super sexy layouts, overcomplicated, macro-driven, Lewis-scripted, yeah. nightmares that their show literally just looks like a, a clown just vomited all over the stage. It's just, you know, and they give it all away within the first, the first four bars. Yeah. My first question when somebody wants to show me their, their crazy macro is like, well, what does it do and why would I need that? Right. And if they can't, if they, if they can't answer that immediately, I'm like, I'm not that interested. I, I mean, my, you know. my show file, our show file at SJ lighting, um, has a lot of macros in it 
but it's mostly, most of the macros are for setup stuff to just kind of really be efficient about getting pallets into mm -hmm. playbacks quickly labeled things like that. So we've spent a lot of time with a lot of information in order to extract and basically do all the record, 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 and just bash it in. Um, but the playback stuff, which I try to stay away from 90% of macros. There's a couple things right that just macros are supposed to make life easier. You know, it's not just for exercise. So if I know I need to get from point A to point B and I need to do it in an instant, and I want to have a feature set that would normally be 30 key presses. Yes, that's when you would write with 30 key presses into a macro right. so that you can have that at one button press. You know, so that's where the efficiencies come in. It sounds like you have a career's worth of, of saying, hey, I do this a lot. Can you make it so I do this faster next time I have to do this? Because this X process takes me a really long time. Absolutely. And that's what our show file is now. Um, it is years worth of, okay, this needs to be faster. This needs to be faster. A lot of my current macros uh, for, you know, we, we're MA users. So a lot of the current macros on series two are legacy concepts that I brought over from macros that I just made up on my own on series one. And, you know, I would joke and it was, you know, I'd say because I spent a lot of time writing those macros because I'm lazy because I don't want to change pages. <laughs> you know, I want, I want to be able, I want, what, I want what I want when I want it. And I don't want to have to change pages to get it. So I figured out all these macros in order to make these efficiencies for running my show so that I can transition changes instantly. And then, you know, series two offered a little bit more, um, you know, flexibility in the depth of what you can do. So we've just, kind of built all that, but it's all based on, you know, series one philosophies that we've been using for years, which is exactly what you said before. Like, what does it do? I mean, we, mm -hmm. we're not really talking technical stuff, but one day offline, you know, when we're having a whiskey together, I'll explain some of them and you go, I'm, I'm stealing that. Right on. I'm stealing, I'm stealing that one because that <laughs> one will make my life easier. Hey, I'm going to butcher this quote, but it's something like uh, laziness plus necessity plus intelligence equals efficiency. And I've always kind of gone with that one. It's, you know, I, I wouldn't be efficient if I wasn't lazy. And I, and I couldn't be efficient if I wasn't intelligent either. So, you know, if, if I'm going to bang my head against the wall too many times, I'm going to figure out a way to bang my head against the wall less. Right. Well, working, you know, using brain power instead of, you know, raw muscle and just trying to bulldog something in is mm -hmm. a way more efficient procedure, right? That's something that I think of you. Leverage. When I, yeah. When I think of EDC, I think of that being the major difference between rock and roll and EDC programming is the amount of time that some of the people get per fixture on the console to set up their show. I've seen guys at the EDC consoles, uh, at say like the Sahara tent, they roll up, they hit, well, Sahara's Coachella, but I know what you're saying. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, they roll up, they plug in their USB stick, they hit a handful of buttons and, and just, you see these things happening. Like, what are you guys right. doing? How did you? Well, we, well, you know, on the bigger stages, there's typically a previs suite and we also send out 3d information. So mm -hmm. if you're uh, a traveling LD, a touring LD that goes out with an artist, uh, we do our best to make sure that you have all the tools necessary so that you can prepare yourself before you show up, right? You get the patch information, you get all the 3D information. So if you have a show file, uh, you can sit in your home office, your bedroom, wherever, the airplane, wherever you can with your computer, mm -hmm. and you can organize your show file before you get on site. Then uh, we're gonna plug you into the Previs studio. So you can take whatever you've prepped, plug it into Previs, and you can get it dialed in because at a show like EDC, uh, there's only so much dark time that we can offer a programmer. Right. And that's only going to happen before the show because Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the show days, we go till the sun comes up. So you don't get any rig time anymore. So everything mm -hmm. is previs. So that's, that's why a previs really has to be tight. And we have, you know, and it's not just, uh, you know, a wing it previs, but there's a guy dedicated, there's, there's personnel dedicated to the previs suites to make sure that anything that happens on the rig, any changes is a hundred, 
is close to 100% accurate inside that studio so that when right. our guests come in, they can do their best to just get it dialed in. And if we can offer you some, some rig time, you know, very rarely does a guest LD or a guest programmer, video lighting otherwise, get more than an hour or so on the actual rig. And that's an hour with could be five or 600 moving lights. Right. Not a lot of time. Yeah, that's the, the new norm for the EDM world is that many lights, that little time. And we're talking about mega structures where I'm not going to say that the, the LD has anybody's life in their hands, but they're dealing with a, an entire city block worth of fixtures. And, right. and for you to keep track of all those polygons in that file, there's got to be massive well, it's not really stages anymore. It's environments. Right. Whereas like a rock and roll kind of theory would be stage. It's a stage look, right? You have, you know, a 60 wide, a 60 by 40, an 80 by 40, and you've got a rig over the stage and maybe you have a B rig out over the house. But in a lot of these dance music festivals, um, the stages could be 400 feet wide. And then we have towers out in the house that come out 800 feet down the sides of the environment. We're supporting 60,000 people on a stage because it's a dance party. So wherever they are, like we're trying to go, you know, I'm doing air quotes, immersive environments so that the lighting really is everywhere. The video is everywhere. So when you're programming and you're kind of dialing these things in, you need to be extremely efficient and organized in your console programming and setup of these things. Otherwise you're going to get, you're going to get buried. Mm -hmm. It's, it's an odd progression how it went from 90 lights to light the band in rock and roll to 500 lights to light the audience in, in the EDM world. Whereas it used to be light the money, with half the rig and then light the audience with you know, whatever's left. But now in the EDM world, it's you only need three lights to light the money now and the other uh, so, yes. uh, so many to light the audience. You know what? It's a DJ, right? So you do right. need to activate. You know, people want to see who's performing, but there is something to be said for actually lighting the stage environment. You have scenic, you have otherwise. And I think that that's also one of the deficiencies out there currently is that every lamp gets pointed into the audience. And I think there needs to be a balance. The rock and roll guys understood that, understand that, mm -hmm. that when there's a performer on stage, whether it's one guy stationary or it's 12 different individuals pieces, that all these pieces need to be lit. And that's still a focal point. And you still need to draw attention to that focal point. Everything can't just be crowd position or, you know, hand to God. It, there needs to be something to look at. There needs to be a picture on there for you to develop. And I would love to see, you know, more shows, especially dance music driven shows, kind of give a little bit more focus to that so that they can understand philosophically kind of what it takes to entertain the audience and keep them occupied instead of just, you know, the whizzing and flashing of just, you know, nothing worse than just having your show called Flash and Trash. Right. Mm -hmm. There needs you want something that's maybe a little bit more curated and lighting the stage will offer that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the reason why we're there. I mean, we could, if the, if the DJ wasn't actually there, you could in theory just hit play on a, on a laptop, but the mere fact that they're there and their atmosphere and their vibe and their persona should be accentuated and, Lighting is the best way to do that. Absolutely. I think Lighting, that gets video, lost special sometimes. effects, it's, yeah. It, it does, it gets lost all the time. Uh, but also keep in mind, they're not jumping around. It's not Mick Jagger on stage with a microphone in his hand, you know, getting down, you know, to the people at the downstage edge, you know, and, you know, screaming in their face. You know, they're still, they're in a booth, you know, Maybe they're going to jump up and down on top of the booth, but at the end of the day, it's a lot of, you know, fist pumping and standing on the DJ booth, you know, raising their mm -hmm. hands up in the air, trying to get the crowd excited, but it's mostly a stationary object. 
That's a great transition in my next question. The, the nightclub scene used to be the underground and part of it used to be its danger and it wasn't regulated. But now with 60,000 people, you can't have an unregulated stage. You can't sell tickets to something like that without insurance and all that. Are you finding the, the OSHA standards and the security standards and the safety protocols to be far more advanced now? Uh, they are, and I think it's critical to have those in place. I mean, when you have that many people congregating, uh, their safety, you know, they're depending on the promoters and the producers of these events to make sure that they have a safe place to come and hang out and party and enjoy a show. So whilst years ago it might have been a little bit more rogue, uh, it was a more dangerous environment. I've done, you know, in my the early part of my career, I've done more than a handful of parties that maybe weren't as legit as they should have been or mm -hmm. not legit at all. And that just, I, I wouldn't go anywhere near those anymore. There's just too much liability. And I couldn't, you know, couldn't live with myself if somebody got hurt or something went wrong because of uh, the ineptitude or, in, you know, unwillingness or any other reason, you know, inefficiencies of what should be in place to make sure that you have a show that can be of the highest quality with the standards that are appropriate. Yeah, there's, it's a, it's a very real concern when you're designing mega structures, you have to, you have to can still consider egress and how is somebody going to get from backstage to front of house safely right. or even possibly there's uh, barricades are such a major concern nowadays. I would imagine these are all things you didn't have to consider in the, in the earlier days of EDM. No, not so much. I mean, they were thought of, but now, I mean, when we get on, you know, a zoom call or, you know, some online review and we have drawings up and, and all of the, the participants in production, all the consultants are there you know, all the people that are involved and we're laying out all of those things. Everything's considered. So we might be moving things just a few feet here and there to accommodate VIP areas, to accommodate barricade, to accommodate back a house, you know, fire lanes, uh, everything that you mentioned, all needs to be very carefully laid out. I would imagine you have to walk a fine line between the artists and the promoters wanting their, their production to be unique and spectacular and the biggest ever, uh, and you also have to say like, no, this is any bigger than this and we're going to get unsafe. I would imagine you're constantly walking that line. Like, Hey, this is, this is as big as you can do with, with what we have here. Yeah. And the conversation definitely comes up. I'd say more and, you know, as time goes on, um, as tour managers, as production managers, as designers gain more experience, I think their understanding of what's possible is also mitigated in those areas. So mm -hmm. you don't have to have the conversation as much, but every once in a while it does come up. And, you know, sometimes you have artists that come to a festival that think it's their tour and not, you know, their one hour set. And you have to balance that relationship <laughs> as well to, you know, make sure that there's some sort of compromise that they get some of what they're asking for. The show is still not compromised for other artists that the talent buyer doesn't walk away with egg on his face and that the producer slash promoter of the event still gets a high five from that artist at the end. And it's a good experience. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that happens in rock and roll uh, more and more these days is even though there is a festival rig in place, the, the headline artist always wants to bring in either more than what's available or they want to bring in just, yeah, that's all great. Let's just change everything. Is that, is that happening in the EDM world as well? It happens. And, you know, we try to limit that to if something like that's going to happen, it's typically just the headliner. And then, you know, we have to decide what it is. It depends on the artist and it depends on the promoter. You know, some contracts might say they cross out everything they want and they just write in festival production. And in those instances, Obviously, things are a little bit easier on our side because, you know, my company, we 99% of the time we work for the festival and not for the artist. So not having to accommodate 
multiple artist writers to come in is great. And then there's some shows where every headliner, two or three headliners a night, there's a changeover and we need to support what they're doing, which means that the design work needs to be balanced in order to accommodate whatever they're going to hang and fly in the rig, uh, you know, because, you know, some shows, a ground package is just not good enough for them. Ground packages are obviously the easiest way to go. Hey, right. you know, we have a riser park. We can give you, you know, a bunch of rolling risers with gear on it. You can put your design in and there's a 30 minute changeover. We'll pull your stuff out. And then there's other festivals that, you know, there could be an hour long changeover and the rig drops in and, you know, points are picking up scenic elements and other things. And, I, you know, there's a high level of risk doing that as well. You know, I've seen a lot of shows, things just not work as intended or for whatever reason, if something's going to fail, it's going to fail at the worst possible time, which is typically right as, <laughs> right as you're about to go on stage. Yeah. That's when a fiber gets cloudy that's or something al- like that's that. Always, that's always when things go wrong is <laughs> just as you're about to hit the button is when the shit hits the fan. Mm-hmm. You can only hope that you just don't have a, a vodka tonic in your hand at the exact moment that everything goes wrong. You're like, oh, shit, everything was going right. So I it's usually a bad idea, a but drink. I tell you what, that, that <laughs> separates like uh, the professionals from the amateurs really quick. You know, it's all, you know, you know, most people can handle a show and they can put it on when it's rainbows and unicorns. Right. But mm-hmm. when it's uh, when the skies go dark and things start going upside down on you at the worst possible time, you know, I've seen lots of individuals crack under that pressure and fail. Uh, and that's when the true professionals, that's when you really see who they are because those are the people that come through and really make it happen and pull it off. Even if there's a delay or whatnot, there's a, you know, I've always had this, you know, my expression is, you know, we're going to get it done or we're going to die trying. And then I would mm-hmm. laugh and kind of tongue in cheek say, and when I say die trying, I'm not being cliche. I mean, I step over your dead body. Like, we don't stop until it's done or you're just not breathing anymore. Those are the two options. Get it done or stop breathing. It is one of the stop, paradoxes. I'm not saying stop breathing, you know, like I'm wishing that on you, but that's the only reasonable excuse for it to not be done. Tired, you know, I can't do it. These are not reasonable answers. It's one of the, the most impressive paradoxes in our industry is that in one regard, it is so not important. We're just making lights blink and flash and we're just kind of providing an atmosphere for people. But at the same time, it is the most important thing in the world at that moment. If that, those lights aren't blinking the way they're supposed to be blinking or if they're blinking when they're not supposed to be blinking or they're not blinking when they are supposed to be blinking, it is the right. most important thing in the world. And I will step over, I will push you aside to to make sure that those lights are blinking when they're supposed to be blinking. Absolutely. Yeah. I've been known to be a little aggressive in those situations, but I've also been known <laughs> to make sure that the show, ha- if I'm up there, that the, whoever is employing me for that, that they don't have to worry about it. I'm worrying about it. And I always tell, you know, my clients, my friends, my, my clients, friends are usually the same people. Um, I tell them, you know, if you see me panic, if you truly see me panicking, you're fucked. Like, at that point in time, you should probably pack your shit and leave. Otherwise, just stay the fuck out of my way and understand that I'm going to get the job done. Don't ask me any questions until it's over. And then I'm happy to share the whole story with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you, uh, if you try and get a a status report right now, you're going to get a, you're going to get an earful. Don't worry about it. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to just, you know, you're going to get the hand. You're going to get the straight arm. Yeah. Stay away from me right now. I'm dealing with this. Like I said, if you see me panicking, you're 100% fucked. Yeah. That takes a lot of confidence and a lot of trust in lost. you to be able to, to be able to like, hey, look, you're about to get the straight arm, but it's for your own good that you're getting right. the straight arm. Right. Well, how long have you been doing this, Chris? Uh, I'm in 20 years now. I've been, right. I've fucked up some pretty bad shows and I've, I've, saved, some, I've saved some bigger shows. So. Yeah, I've had, I've had shows that have brought me to my knees and, yeah. uh, and then I've had other shows where I have saved it. Um, yeah, I haven't been dropped to my knees. It's been a couple decades since that happens, but you know, I've got 25 plus of doing this and nothing can, can replace experience. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but real world experience, you can't speed it up. You can't slow it down. That's what it is. So even, you know, younger people coming up, 
you know, the best thing I could say is you just need to keep doing it because as smart as you are, as, as much information as you've acquired and knowledge, short of just being boots on the ground and in the, and in the weeds with us at the worst possible situation, um, those are the real lessons that teach us things that, that have the most value in what it takes to, to get it done and mm-hmm. in production, in life in general, right? I'm sure there's lots yeah. of lessons being learned at this current day and time all over the planet of what it takes. I've been doing this just long enough to know that I should wait till at least the encore to have anywhere, have any drinks even near, near me. I know that even though I can drink and, and run a show that I shouldn't just because even if it's optics or just in case, if anything were to go wrong and I have a drink in my hand, I'm going to get double in shit for that. Uh, whereas in, yeah, I'm guilty. When I used to go to Sorry. nightclubs, guilty. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I said I'm guilty then. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent guilty. When I used to go to nightclubs, consoles even came with cup holders before that very reason. And now right. I don't see cup holders on consoles anymore because I think we have a lot more responsibility. I mean, we're not just, we're just not, we're not controlling a bunch of Mac two fifties and we're actually controlling automation and video and yeah. lights and, and so many lights. There's a lot of responsibility standing at the helm of the desk. And when you have that, you need to be on top of all of it and you need to be on your game. So if you're going to take yourself down the rabbit hole, then you should turn the reins over to somebody else and let them run it. And then you go backstage, go drink with your friends. Absolutely. That's, that's great advice for anybody listening. Right now. Don't do what I do. I just think do what we're I past say. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait till you're at the, the SJ level to start uh, doing it. You know what? Uh, I accept resp- If I fuck something up, I, I will own it and I'll accept responsibility. So, so, so far I have dodged the bullets, you know, because you know, uh, I don't wait for the encore. <laughs> Good job, Neo. You're quite the, you're quite the, uh, the, the bullet dodger. But a, but a rock and roll show is two hours. You only got to wait two hours for the encore. I'm doing shows that could be 10, 12 hours long. You can't yeah. reasonably expect me to not have a fucking drink for 12 straight hours Absolutely. on the show. <laughs> uh, so another question I had is I was looking over some of your photos and some of them have just this massive production value with just lights everywhere. And some of them are so elegant with just so few lights. When do you have to make the decision to go extravagant or elegant? Is that, is that happened in the design process or is it in the budgetary restrictions? Where does that come from? That's typically a design philosophy and approach. Um, It depends also on the musical genre. And if you understand the demographic of the audience that's coming to see a particular artist or a particular environment, you need to understand what those environments are. So, you know, techno, you know, kind of jungle, tribal house, you know, drums style of music is gonna be a darker, less video, more of the negative space, you know, linear, edgy design aesthetic, as opposed to, you know, the more pop style DJs, the marshmallows, uh, David Guetta's, things like that, are probably gonna be a brighter, more video driven, kind of philosophy and look and aesthetic that you're going to put forth. So, and then there's other genres in the middle of that. So, you know, there's, there's products in Europe, like there's a show called Q dance, which is like side trance and like 180 beats a minute, like G G G G. But their stuff is like beautiful scenic dragons and, you know, all sorts of kind of mythological design features. And then it's very scenic driven. And then you get into, you know, a techno show, whether it's, you know, Future Fest or Factory 93 or uh, Framework or any of the other like American techno brands, you're going to see, you know, very straightforward, linear, hard edge details. I mean, there's design aesthetics and that's done, you know, with certain approaches and certain fixture types, but it's not that, you know, you're not going to see big scenic looks. It's so it's, it's music driven, it's genre driven, it's demographically driven. Yeah, the, the lighting rig used to always be just overhead, but that's not the case anymore. The, the lighting has actually migrated its way behind the artist and become the, the central, right. the centerpiece. 
And so I would imagine that for you, you have to decide not just what the atmosphere is going to be, but what you're going to have to decide what the look is and you have to be the one to, uh, to collaborate to say, Hey, are we going to make this a huge extravagant piece or are we going to try and keep it elegant and we're going to just going to use more video and with uh, accents of lighting in the middle. Right. Uh, when do you make, you know, go ahead. I mean, as you're, you design, so it's, it's as a designer, it's you, you're trying to come up with an aesthetic an approach, you know, some sort of direction. And it's what feels right when you start the sketch process, you know, so you start putting it together. You also have to have, you know, a strong understanding in order to be, to have a very successful system. You have to have a strong understanding of what it takes to program a system. So hanging lights in every possible direction on side angles and upside down this way and this one's that way. You know, if you don't ever sit at the desk and you do something like that, you're an asshole. Um, <laughs> you've literally yes. just made it miserable for the guys who need to sit, you know, the people who need to, I keep saying guys and I don't mean guys. I mean, men and women alike, anybody who sits at a console. So when I say guys, I apologize if anybody's taken offense to that, but just know that I mean, Hey, you guys, you know, like everyone, all of you, men and women, um, Very I'm PC. Gonna probably, I'm going to, well, it's not even meant to be PC. I've, I've seen fantastic female male operators on, you know, doing all sorts of stuff. So I don't mm -hmm. want people think that there's only men doing this. Um, so sorry for the tangent, but you need to have a really strong understanding of what it takes to put lights out in a certain order, especially for a festival to know that somebody could come in and grab equipment efficiently and dial in a look quickly, you know, and not all of a sudden literally have to grab every single fixture independently and figure out which fucking way it's going to get it focused. And then when it starts moving, it's like you, you have to invert it because all of a sudden this light's wiggling to the left and that light's wiggling to the right. But you know, in the position they look okay. And you're like, Oh my God, you know, these things are a fucking nightmare. So if you don't know what you're doing there, just let somebody else do it. Yeah, you just touched on a, a very important topic where I would imagine you're constantly battling this where the promoter wants a new and more creative rig every year. But you also know that like, hey, that's well, what we did last year worked because it's perfect. It's it's straight lines. It's it's functional. Right. I'd imagine you also have to walk a line between creativity and abstract and still functional. Yeah, that, that is kind of a, a daily struggle as a designer because drawing the pretty picture is one thing. Being able to build the pretty picture is another thing. And then being able to program the pretty picture is just another level on top of all of these, these layers that create the environment. And it's, you know, one is just as important as another. You know, so you, again, you could put out a thousand moving lights, but if you've hung them all in, you know, in a different array and pattern, you can't grab them efficiently. And then I only give you an hour to program them. How the fuck are you going to program a thousand moving lights, you know, and get even one solid position? Yeah. You're not, if you're you not going to. If you spend your whole day doing positions, you've, you've wasted a day, right? an hour. You know, and when we do festivals, like, you know, the festival programmer, which, you know, on, uh, you know, on the bigger stages, on a lot of the shows we do, I go out and personally program, you know, whatever positions I put in, I give them to any, you know, if any of the artists that come in, any of the LDs want them, you know, we export them, take them, please. We want you to be able to utilize your time efficiently. Some of the canned shows that come in that are time coded, you know, they know very specifically what they want, but they still might take them just as a base work to just make sure right. things are going in the right direction and then edge out the rest of their stuff. Right on. Sounds like you're very giving, Steve. Sounds like uh, you're not uh, protecting your intellectual property when your position's there. I, you know what? Um, none of this is a secret. None, nothing that we do out here is a secret. That's like proprietary intellectual property. So if you're not willing to share, don't expect anybody to share with you, right? And, and I can assure you that whatever chase you've created with your Lewis script your red blue chase or your up down sweep or waterfall. Uh, it's been done before and 
Yours doesn't look any <laughs> fucking different than mine, and, and I don't want it. So don't worry about me stealing your show file or any of that other bullshit where guys are like, you know, make sure you delete my show file. Do I delete my show file at the end? Typically, yes. If I'm at the desk, I will. If I'm not at the desk, you know, it doesn't really bother me. You know, a lot of my macros, whilst I don't, you know, I don't give them out. Um, if you don't know how to use them, you know, they're probably worthless yeah. to you anyway. You know, it's so, not about no, the quality. I, I don't, I don't, I don't keep it right here and protect it. You know, that's if you need something and I can help you out and share it with you. Uh, and we're we're friends. Yeah, of course. And even if we're not, and I don't even know who the hell you are, but you show up at one of our shows uh, and you're there to support an artist, my job is to make sure that you have a good experience and a good show. So for the interest of the artist, for the interest of the audience, for the interest of the producer, and God forbid somebody thinks I'm at the desk and you fuck up, well, shit, man. I don't want anybody to think that was me either. So I want you to do a good job. I was being a smart ass there, but you know. Uh, that's, a, that's a great philosophy. I, I'm really enjoying seeing how different people respond to the open source programming styles that exists nowadays. Anything that can be digitized can be sent out onto the internet. And it's, right. it doesn't matter how, how reserved you are and how, protect, how much you death grip protect your, your property. It's going to get out there one way or another. So right. I mean, now, it lives listen, on the console. If you're a code writer for MA, you know, so I could understand Michael Adenau being, you know, yeah. not giving out the code for the back end of an MA console because he's been knocked off by other manufacturers selling it. But you can't tell me that an MA show file is a proprietary piece of information that you've written because you're some magical fucking genius. No, I'm sorry. This is open source. It's a console I could download on PC right now. You've twisted their software to suit your needs, but yeah. you didn't create the software. You're just right. manipulating it to, to be what you need it to be. Just like I've seen other softwares out there where people are like claiming it as their own, you know, um, touch designer is, is a fantastic backend, but it's still touch designer. You're manipulating things inside touch designer. You know, it's at the end of the day, it's touch designer software with your show file. Yeah. I, uh, I've seen people argue to the death that what they did with that show file is theirs. And I, I often have to remind them like, well, you got paid for that. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your client. And if they fire you and you take that with you, it's theirs. You have to give it back to them. They, they paid you to create that. It's a, that's correct. I don't know where the, yeah. I don't know where the line is between, well, that was my show file that I applied to their show. And I don't know where the line, uh, where the line If you exists. get paid to program a show for someone and they're paying you to program their show, um, I think there's some crossover, but you both own it. You can keep your show file and so can they. You don't get okay. to delete it out. Of, you don't get to delete it out of the desk. So like, let's say, you know, in a nightclub, for instance, you know, I put a system into a club, I program it, and then my relationship with the club, for whatever reason, goes south. I'm not going to go in there and delete the information out of the desk because that's, you know, this is my creativity in the desk. No, first of all, I'm inhibiting their ability to make it, you know, to make their system work. That's criminal. Um, right. And they, you know, theoretically have paid me for that service. Now, whether or not they fulfilled their obligation, you still can't go in and take it back. You know, there are laws involved right. in protecting that sort of stuff. Yeah. And you kind of just look like an asshole if you do that. You know, nobody's going to pat you on the back and go, way to go, boy. You know, <laughs> yeah, you really stuck it. You, you took their show file. Now, now they're fucked. Amazing. You're an amazing person. Yeah, you're not going to get a second job for doing that. No, no. Now, some of your close friends might be like, yeah, fuck that person. But that's, that's a bad attitude. And, you know, if you have a problem like that, you should just, just separate yourself from them, chalk it up to uh, a learning lesson, and you're going to take the L on that one and just move on. Yeah. You're going to be the most popular guy at the frat party for about a day, and then right. uh, they're going to forget. And, and then you're not going to get hired again. People, people will talk about that. You wipe out somebody's – you fuck with somebody's desk, even if they – quote unquote, deserved it, 
that will spread like wildfire through the industry. I mean, there's been talk of, you know, for those of us who program and we're not going to mention any names, um, but I've heard of actual things happening of hard drives getting formatted and show files getting wiped on major concerts and others throughout the years because people were protecting themselves. Mm -hmm. And in the end, you know, people, you, you share that story and people go, whoa, okay, well, I guess I'll be careful around that individual. And you don't want people to have to say that. Like, oh, I got to be careful yeah. around this guy because we get into an argument. Next thing you know, my date is gone. Don't be yeah. that guy. I don't want to deal with hotheads any more no. than I need to. Don't be that guy. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that you had talked about earlier was how easy it is to make pretty pictures and sell them to your clients now. You and I have both been in this industry long enough to remember that it used to be bar napkins and uh, some stencils. And you're like, right. look, you need to have some uh, creativity, but this is a great idea. Right. I drew this up with uh, some pencils and some pens and, right. and I need you to put uh, $50,000 down on this nightclub. But nowadays, you need a lot more than a, a bar napkin to sell your designs because you, you've got a lot more competition and, you, they, with, and you're selling to accountants with a lot less creativity and forethought. That's Are you right. finding that the previs stuff and the, the pictures that you can create, the digital environments are so much more helpful? Oh, they're amazing. Uh, but things start, you know, maybe not with the bar napkin, but for me, things always start with a sketch or they stay, they start with obsessive compulsive neurotic behavior where I'm not drawing anything, but my mind won't stop thinking about it. So obviously an idea starts and, but it typically ends up in some sort of sketch format. Now, whether it's, excuse me, whether it's digital with a digital pen on a tablet or it's, you know, a pad and a paper, or, you know, I've got SketchUp notes, you know, ra rather, uh, you know, uh, post-its where I might sketch a little idea somewhere. Uh, but you have to start mm -hmm. somewhere and start developing it and try things to move things forward. And then, you know, the tools obviously have become very advanced. Um, you know, even in my office, you know, I've God knows how many licenses of, of various software that we own that we mm -hmm. used to develop to take it all the way to the finish line, you know, from, you know, what, not to go technical, but like Cinema 4D and their various plugins to do photorealistic renderings or, you know, maybe something that we can bang a rendering out a little bit quicker, like, in a, you know, we own WYSIWYG. So we'll use that for things that need to just kind of get the point across. Cool idea. Um, close to photo, but not photo real. You know, it's WYSIWYG. Right. It, looks, it looks really good. But if you want the photo real stuff where people go, wow, when was that show? And you go, eh, that show didn't happen yet. It's, it's in a month. You know, yeah. that's the effect you want to get. Um, so having the tools to be able to do that is tremendous. Yeah. In order to create those same photos, you used to have to actually mock things up, do some serious arts and crafts and go to Michael's Photoshop crafts and get some yeah. little dollhouse furniture oh, yeah. and all that. Back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, the, the tools that we have today are far more expensive, but they're, they're much less time consuming. You can bang out so many more designs in the same amount of time. If you know how to drive. Exactly. If you know, if you know how to drive for sure. I would imagine you have a team of people driving these days, kind of. Yeah, I can't run all the software. Although, you know, like, so right now, you know, during this, uh, this quarantine situation, I've taken the opportunity. There was actually a sale. It was like a $1,600 class for all things Adobe, like from Photoshop all the way to After Effects and everything in the middle um, for 35 bucks. So wow. I bought that and I'm only about five or six hours in you know, of 60 hours of lessons that I bought, but I'm taking that time when I have free time. You know, I'm, right now I'm doing, you know, like I just bought it about two weeks ago. So I'm getting about two hours, two and a half hours in a week. You know, so I'm just trying to add at least enough so I can be dangerous, but not enough to really do a project. But if I need to get into Photoshop, Illustrator, um, After Effects, I know how to open up a project file and manipulate something enough to get some stuff done. And so I'm trying to add to my, you know, kind of surface level software skills outside of my daily usage kind of items. Cool. That sounds like a very productive use of your, of your downtime. 
trying, you know, in between I, golf I mean, and, uh, and parenting and husbanding and yeah, the golf, only, the golf happens very early in the morning. So even on the days that I do play golf, um, I try to be out there by 7am and then I'm done by 930 and then the workday starts at 10. So even if it puts a delay into my day, it's, I'm, I'm maybe pushing my day back by an hour so that I can get, you know, my own, you know, my own little escape and, and personal time, you know, at the crack of dawn. So I'll get up at 5.30 in the morning, get dressed. I'm at the golf course by 6.30 and I'm, and I'm home by the time everybody's finishing coffee and breakfast. Right on. Well, we are almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you one last question. Sure. And it comes down to the renderings and all the, the work that you're putting in. When you're selling a design or if, you, if you're bidding it, do you think that people are choosing you based on you and Steve and your reputation? Or do you think they're, they're, pick, they're choosing you more on the quality of your, the representation of your work uh, and the, the pretty pictures? Well, so, so here's the thing. Uh, I think it's a combination of those things. I don't think there's any one clear answer where the lines are so black and white. Uh, of course, work comes our way because I've been doing this for a long time and we can stand on some of the previous work and our laurels from previous jobs. However, um, you're not going to see a rendering or a drawing from us unless you contract us. So in that regard, wow. you do need to have enough faith that you're hiring the right people because we will not draw unless we have a contract. So it's, like, it's definitely like any commission work. Yeah. You're, you're not bringing anything to the table until somebody asks you to put it on the table. We're not, eight, yeah, so. we're not farming. Got um, it. Yeah. I mean, there are some clients uh, that we do other work for that will ask us to maybe do something. And that's just a relationship thing, but that's not like, Hey, we're going to show you a design and you could let us know whether or not you want to pay for it. Um, I think that's just a bad business philosophy for a designer. I think you'd leave yourself too exposed. Um, I think, you know, in my younger days and probably younger people coming up, you don't really have much of a choice. So, you know, when I first started contracting design services and being paid for them, yeah, it was exactly that. Uh, I tried to get money up front, but, because I wasn't able to really qualify the design fees. I would say if you gave X dollars, you know, to the design right now, I'll take those dollars and I'll move them towards the equipment purchase. If you buy gear for your nightclub. So let's say I can get $5,000 out of you and you were going to spend 50 on a system, you know, that $5,000 whilst didn't go to the equipment right away, paid for me to do the work. And then I can make it up in whatever profit margin I would be able to, create in the sale of some product. Okay. But nowadays they are, there's a very clear separation between design services and any sort of bill of materials and procurement that we might be doing. So services cost what services cost. I have to pay staff. I have to keep the doors open. I have a hundred thousand dollars a year in software licenses that need to be paid for. Um, you need to pay for that service if you want us to work. If you don't right. want us to work, there might be somebody else out there that can get it done. You know, who knows? You know, go for it. Ah, it's very clear, very upfront. I, uh, I definitely appreciate your matter of fact, your frankness. Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time, Steve. This has been great. I really got to, I'm really happy to catch up with you and see how everything's going. Likewise. I appreciate your time. I'm, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Honored to be on your podcast and, you know, talk to your listeners and, you know, I listen to it as well and I read PLSN. So, uh, yeah, this was a lot of fun. And especially uh, during this time when we're all locked up dealing with quarantine and, you know, hopefully, you know, our industry has obviously been uh, impacted at its, you know, at its highest levels. And I think it's important for, for those of us who make an, make a living here to, to really kind of look forward and figure out how to just kind of keep moving some sort of professional development, personal development. I mean, is it absolutely critical? No, but you don't want to just sit still and just sit in it. You need to keep your mind active. You know, I'm not saying you need to go out and take a, take a class and you need to learn how to be a programmer, but just, you need to stay active, exercise, just get out. Just don't sit on your couch and you know, 
eat potato chips and onion dip all day. I mean, just do something. If you can do it professionally, great. Uh, otherwise, like expand yourself personally, you know, and just keep your mind active because this will end soon and you don't want to be playing catch up, you know, for the three, four, five, six months or whatever the fuck it is that we're locked up. Don't be playing catch up. Try to do your best to, to kind of stay on top of your homework. Absolutely. Thanks for your time. Thank you.